looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. This morning's message is really part two of a two-part message on excellence as we prepare to understand about the Lord coming. And as I look over this wonderful group of people here today, it's easy to see that we've got guests that are with us. And because we love our guests so much, we don't want them to feel left out. I'm going to just kind of pick up a little bit where we left off last time we were together and bring them into this message. But today, it might be helpful if you have your Bibles with you to open your Bible now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we are going to go from verse 1 through verse 12. Now, if you came without a Bible, most of what I'll be sharing with you is on the printed sheet that was handed to you as well as the screen behind me. But for those of you that like the feel of a Bible, a book in your hand, you're welcome to reach in the chair in front of you. You'll find a Bible in there next to a hymn book and you're welcome to pull that out. It might be a little bit different translation than what I have for you, but it will still be God's word nonetheless. So it should be a blessing to you. To begin with, we're talking about in the pursuit of excellence, and to do that, I'd like to at least share with you the first part of this passage, and then I'd like to make some comments on the importance of excellence in our life, because it really is important for us to live an excellent life. Let's look here at verse 1, and here's what you read. It says, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that you should abound, or that would mean to become more excellent more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Then it says, for you know a commandment we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about a couple of areas in which to be excellent. Now, I like to live in a world where the people that I depend upon for information or help in some measure would be excellent in what they do. Because if they don't live up to all that they can and should be, sometimes when I lean on them for advice or help, uh, they go crashing down and I go with them. And so excellence is important. We enjoy excellence, don't we? Some of us that are maybe looking at artwork, we talked about how important it is for us to look at artwork and to know what an excellent job that is and the value of that artwork when it is done so well. This afternoon and even today, there's some games going on to determine eventually, after next week, what will be the most excellent football team for this year in the Super Bowl. And of course, the team is nothing but made up of players that hope that they have done their homework and exercised excellently, played the game excellently, that their coaches were on the mark and all the things that they needed to do. All of the attendants in the medical field giving them medical attention, everything that is done, like one big symphony of athletes coming together to find out who would be the one that perhaps rose to the top of excellence. And so we do enjoy that world of excellence. I enjoy people that when I look to them for information or instruction or even a simple manual that everything is there in that manual and I can follow it very clearly and install that software or repair that or put together a toy for the kids that kind of thing and have you ever been where you opened up a manual and it wasn't written excellently besides maybe misspelled words you couldn't even understand it and you had to call for tech support how many of you have had that situation would you raise your hand look at How many of you, when you call tech support, they couldn't figure it out either, so they had to pass it up to somebody else? Raise your hand. We live in a world that sometimes people aren't as excellent as they could be. Aren't we all pulling that this sweet lady who had a bullet that went from one end of her head to the other and exited, that she would get the most excellent treatment so that whatever could happen, humanly speaking, that she would be put back together as best as she can and then we're depending upon a miracle to go beyond that. So wouldn't we want her to have that excellent treatment? Of of course we would. And so excellent is important. 
Now, sometimes there are things that are humorous. Sometimes you can read even signs, and the signs are not clear. They give a mixed message. I was traveling in Southern California when Carol and I were pastoring there, and we had to go to San Diego. And we passed as we were heading on the San Diego freeway into San Diego. There was a sign there that said, Airport Cruise Ship Exit. And I thought, well, for me, that was kind of funny. You know, airports and cruise ships exiting off this freeway. And I know that's not what it meant, but I thought, isn't that? That was funny to me. But anyway, but there are things that are, not, that are done that send mixed messages. And so sometimes we'll chuckle over that, and you'll be thinking more about those mixed messages. But what happens in Christianity, though, is that we allow ourselves to not be excellent. We put it underneath God's grace, God's mercy, God understands, God loves. We get a lot of do-overs, there's a great forgiveness, we can start again. And I don't want to minimize any of that. That is the uniqueness and the defining part of Christianity often as it's found all of that in the person and the work of Christ. And yet, at the same time the Lord will do that for us, we don't want to misunderstand. He then, through his writers of scripture, spoke to us about how important it is to be excellent in everything that we do. And so parents are now stepping up and learning how to be an excellent mom and dad and parent. They're helping their kids to learn how to be excellent human beings and citizens and to be doing excellently in school, knowing that the information and truths that they're learning are like tools that are going into their mental toolbox that later on they've got to pull out and build lives and life with. And so we want to be excellent. Well, in this passage, it talks about two primary areas. So it's now telling us that we need to be excellent even more and more and more in our walk. So we talked about moral excellence the last time we were together. It's interesting how the very first thing he addresses the church with is that they would be morally pure. Now that's not too odd because he was speaking to a culture that was loaded with immorality. Immorality was pervasive through the entire culture from top to bottom including their worship. And so he knew these people that were coming to know Christ as Savior and becoming a church there, they were coming out of that culture, but they still had that propensity for those kinds of sins in their life. And so there was a great challenge to them. And so then he said, I had to speak to that. And here's what he wrote. If you'll follow along now, beginning in verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, body, and sanctification and honor not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage or defraud his brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to moral impurity and cleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man or man's teaching here, but God who has given us his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit to prompt us to see where there's danger ahead. The Holy Spirit to see where the temptation is and to convict us when we're going in the wrong direction. The Holy Spirit to give us power to do what's right. In fact, the most powerful word is not saying no. The powerful word is to say yes to God that gives us power than to say no to that which would be evil. So it's all found in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we talked about that. And so it's now in our public life. He says, be excellent in your moral life. It tends to be a little bit more public because morality, even though it's done in the cloud of darkness, is with another human being. It's not often just by yourself, and you know what I mean by that. It involves others. Let's go a little bit further because now he moves talking about, and he says that we need to really demonstrate love and to love more and more. And here's what he says in verse 9. He says, but concerning brotherly love, 
You have no need that I write to you. Sounds like they're already excellent. You don't need me to write this for you yourselves. You're taught by God to love one another. So you know the truth. God taught you the truth. In verse 10 he says, And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. So he says, you pretty well have your act together. But like a good pastor, and like I would commend you, and how I'm so pleased to know that that the people in our church are striving for moral purity, and especially our young people. And I'm so excited to hear the love that you show one toward another here. How many times I see you just break and pray with someone. How that you wrap your arm around them, or you slap them on the back and say, I love you. And more than that, you put your working clothes on called compassion, and you reach out and to do something for them, giving up your time to make life easier for another person. I am so blessed to shepherd you. There are pastors all over this world who wish they had people like you. In fact, I wish I could clone you, sell you then the clone to the other churches to raise money for our church here. You know what I mean? I love you, and you're doing a great job. But like anything, I could be listening to music or some good preaching on the radio, but sometimes there's a lot of distractions, a lot of things that are out there. So what do I do to be able to hear it better? I crank up the volume. And so here it's talking about you will abound. In the Greek it says that you'll superabound, you'll effervescent even more with love. So it's not that you don't love, it just means that you need to spread a little love around even a little bit more to love one another. It's interesting how this passage begins by saying brotherly love. You love each other like you're a real brother, real sister. And it's really true. I don't know how your family is. I'm sure that around one another you might grumble and gripe, especially the kids that are in here. But when you get older, you don't grumble and gripe so much about brothers and sisters, maybe a little bit. But if anybody else picks on your brother or your sister, you're right there to um, stop it in Christian love. You know what I mean. And so when you're out there, you'll do that. And here that's that brotherly love. But it's a little bit more here because in the passage, look what he says here. This is so cool. He said, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God, here it is, to love. He changes that, and now he says, to love with unconditional love. So it's not just, I love you because you love me, I love you because you're my family, I love you and you love me because I'm part of your family. It's not that. He says, I love you no matter what. I love you no matter when. I love you no matter how. And in the context, if I really do love the brothers, I'm going to protect their moral purity as well. So that's real love. Now some of you that are new into this, loving other Christians and brothers and sisters and all of that, this last week, one of our southern governors of one of our southern states was probably at his own home church, if not a good Bible teaching church. And while he was there, in the midst of his presentation to the church, he said to them, you know, you are my brothers and sisters in Christ if you have trusted Christ as your personal Savior. Because if you've trusted Christ as Savior, that means we have the same Father. And that if we have the same Father, which is God the Father, that makes us brothers and sisters. I would like to tell you that he was theologically accurate. That really we're not brothers and sisters in Christ unless we have the same Father. And the only way we can have the same Father is not by joining the right church. It's by trusting Christ as Savior and getting born again into his forever family. And boom, he's our Father. You're my brother and sister. The only problem was the secular worldview took over, challenged him on that, made him and others perhaps believe that, you know, you're going to then treat others better than you'll treat other people. And that is not what Scripture teaches. I'm loving you and I'm going to love you with a godly love and hoping that you're strong, so what can we do? Reach out and to relieve the suffering of the rest of the world, to take the biblical worldview to overpower, to trump the secular worldview, but they didn't get that because the secular worldview can't think like God, never will. And so you're my brother and sister, and we need to love each other, 
And so maybe right now, while I'm speaking about these great principles and you're celebrating, I know that truth, brothers and sisters, I know that truth, I should love unconditionally. And I kind of know that I can do it by letting God do it through me. You got that. Now what I'd like you to do is in your mind's eye, I want you to pick out some brother or sister in Christ that is an irregular person, that is sandpaper in your life. It could even be a mate, it could be a child, it could be a parent. It could be someone in here, it could be someone that's a Christian at work. But whatever that framework is of that human being, that verse is speaking to us today, this morning, right here. And sovereignly, God wanted us to hear this together as a family, that we need to look at that person and say, Lord, we want to love them unconditionally, and we want to crank up the volume. We want to increase that to that person. Now, when we're doing that, I'm going to tell you this, that when they actually see that happen, the world is going to look at that, and they're going to say, now that is authentic Christianity. There's something different about that. And often the world will say, I want that too. And so we tell them how to have it by placing their faith alone in Christ. Now that, in a sense, is just my introductory material. Because today I want to talk about the excellence that we need to have in a vocational setting. And I'm going to clarify that in just a moment. But on your world of work. So most of what I'm going to say now, if you want to kind of think in your mind, I want you to think about tomorrow when you're at work. And for you kids that are not at work just yet, you are at work. It's called school. Now, you have a boss. It's a teacher. You have things to do, which is called classwork. It's talking about how to get along with your fellow workers, which would be fellow students. And then you might have your break room, which is called lunch. The good news is you don't have to go to school as long as your parents have to go to work. The bad news is they get paid. You don't. But don't laugh, kids, because because they get paid, you have what you have now. So say thank you for that. Now back to this. So we're going to talk a little bit about the world of work because we're talking about how important it is to be excellent in what we do. Now some of you might be saying, well that's okay at work, but I thought this message was going to be how to be excellent in my intimacy with the Lord. And yes, that is important. That's the foundational belief. That's the core value of our church, that our intimacy with the Lord will fuel our outreach for the Lord. You know that. We preach that all the time here. So it is important to be excellent in our quiet time, our holiness before the Lord. But at the same time, frankly... You often cannot divorce your walk with God from your job. Now, some of you might take issue with that. You know, theoretically, that's true. And some of you might even push back against me and say, that's easy for you because when you go to work, you can pray anytime you want. You can say, pray Jesus when you walk up the stairs. You know, you could do it here. But you don't know where I work. Bunch of infidels around there, you know. And I can't do that. And frankly, I understand you can't. I know you can't jump up on your desk and say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I know you can't, and you ought not to do that. I know that you cannot steal from your employer the time that you are being paid to produce work to be able to share Jesus with a fellow worker. I realize that, and that's truth. But at the same time, because we think that we can't have a ministry at work in any fashion, we kind of check out, and all of a sudden, Satan, who's that dirty bird, subtle preacher, being... He then causes us to think that we do have what we might call a little bit of a double life. So after we get that for so long, especially as we enter into public school, that we can't do much there, you know, therefore we can't do it on our job unless you're in ministry, that now we begin to develop an attitude of duplicity. And so we haven't really learned some newer babyer Christians how to navigate around that. But I know you want to because you're saying, but still that doesn't make sense. I do need to bring Christ into my world of work. I know that it must be right because if I'm a Christian, wherever I go in life, whether it's a team, a club, school, or work, 
I'm bringing Christ with me. Now, how much freedom I have to be able to publicly go with it, that might be determined by whom I'm around. On the other hand, listen, listen, listen. We have to still be careful that when we are permitted to have freedom, we haven't overcorrected and not used the freedom that we have to be able to communicate for the Lord. So now what he's doing here, this is kind of an evangelism section of scripture and how to evangelize the lost world. He's now telling us how to set the stage. And so what we're going to talk now about is how to do this, how to take care of what do we do on our job. Now with that in mind, let me read through this scripture, then I'll tell you a little bit about the city in which he was writing this. All right, Follow along, if you will, in verse 9. If you recall at the beginning, he says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you for yourselves are taught how to love and by God, etc. Now, if you will, drop back down to verse 11. He says, besides that you increase more and more, he says, that you also aspire, and that would be like our word, be ambitious, to do three things in verse 11. Number one, that you would lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands, as we commanded you. Now, if you will, you can look up here. It's an interesting phrase here, those three issues, but the last is what I want to park on. He said, I want you to do these as we commanded you. It's in a past tense, which very easily implies that when Paul was in Thessalonica, the church was starting to get formed. He was putting the church together. He had already taught those people to do this. Now he's away from them and he's writing a letter and he's reminding them these are three things you need to do in the wild, wicked world of work. And he says, as we've commanded you. Now, I'm going to be a little pastoral, so let me do this for a second. That's why sometimes some of you that have been coming on a regular basis, you might hear me say things once, twice, three, four, five times. And if, you, if I was like your mother, you'd say, I'm, I'm a broken record here. I just keep going over and over again on this thing. It's only because it's biblical. Peter said, I put you in mind of this to remind again. Paul said, I remind you of this again, brother. So to do this is healthy for us, and Paul is doing it in this case. So he says, as we've commanded you, here are the three things you need to do. Before I go and unpack that, let me just remind you that in order for you to do this, there's got to be a a humbling of, of all of us in this room, that we look at our world of work, that it is a mission field. Now, some mission fields, we can be upfront, full-time speaking for God. Other time, we are upfront, full-time living for God, but maybe not having the freedom yet to speak for God. You cannot separate the two. Last night, I've been, you talked, this morning we were talking about little, uh, what do you call them, New Year's resolutions, etc. I used to have a lot more time to work out and eat right and all of that. I come to the island and I eat nothing but rice, it seems like, and starch, and it's all good. I like, I, and I like rice, you know, I love it. But I have packed on the weight, folks. I put on probably 10, 15 pounds since I've been here. And so I said, you know, Carol, my health is important. I'm going to start doing better eating. So Carol says, no problem. I have the best wife in the world. She makes sure that I eat bushes and roots and sawdust and all this other stuff that I'm supposed to eat. And... Uh, and frankly, she knows how to put it together. It's the tastiest bushes and roots you'll ever eat. And I've been really good. I have lost about six or seven pounds. It's not about the weight loss. It's I feel better. Everything's going, you know, better health. And I, I can't wait to share it with the doctor. But last night, Carol fell from, from grace. <laughs> and I don't eat candy bars. I really don't care for candy bars. If I like any candy, it's uh, chocolate-covered peanuts because I like peanuts. And they're healthy. All right. But I also like Heath bars. 
So if I do go for ice cream, ground up Heath bars in my ice cream. How many like that too? Anybody like that? Okay. So last night, she made for the first time Heath bar cookies. Those cookies were warm. They were chewy. They were chocolatey. They had chunks of peanuts in there, chunks of caramel in there, chunks of chocolate in there. When you'd bite into it, the chocolate would still string to your mouth. And so I had one. And then I had another one. And then she said, now Stan, remember what you... I said, that's right, that's right. So she turned her head. I went into the kitchen and on this baking pan, I took two more. And she saw me and gave me, you know, the stink eye, but that's okay, Grace. So I went back, and she's going to hear this now for the first time. <clears throat> when she wasn't looking, I went back four more times and had four more cookies. <laughs> now, don't laugh. My sweet wife, not seeing that, <clears throat> she was convicted of her sin of having me only have two cookies, so she went on her own and brought to my chair with the most loving, sweet spirit another cookie. <laughs> and I ate that cookie. And an hour later, she said, you know what, I need to get him another one. So she brought me another one. I must have had a half a dozen, eight or nine of these cookies last night. They were so good. I stayed up later than I wanted to, and I'm feeling the effects now, and I probably have diabetes. But (laughs) what made it so good, watch this, is that every part of that cookie had every part of the ingredient put in there in every part of the way that it should. It was excellently made. Now, in our Christian life, could I have eaten that cookie without everything being in there? Yes. Would it have tasted as good? Depending on what she left out or how much extra she put in, it would have modified the flavor, but it would have been edible. Our Christian life can be workable when we leave things out. And tongue-in-cheek, but not too much. Many of us in this room right here probably have different compartments of our Christian life. There's parts of those principles that we've chosen not to embrace. We've left them out, and you're still functioning. In fact, you're here today. But it's not the sweet, it's not the excellence that he wants it to be. So it's important for us to know the word, to embrace each principle, celebrate that each principle is not difficult to apply when we do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's doable. And when we do that, then we'll be sweet like that. And you take that into your world of work. So let's look at this, if you will, for just a moment when we talk about these things. These won't take very long, so let's look at the first one. It says here that we would lead now a quiet life, that you also aspire, you're ambitious, you have to be ambitious, it has to be something that you set as a goal, something that you will work toward, to lead a quiet life. Some translators say that it's a silent life, others feel like that word is too far exegetically, so they bring it back a little bit and says, no, it's not that you have to be a monk and to be seen and not heard, but it does mean that you're not the one who's Mr. or Miss Motormouth that you're the one that kind of slows down. You quiet your life down. You bring it within the margins that you should have. You should understand your boundaries. And now I could preach an entire message just on boundaries and why we step out of boundaries. Anything from psychological things, if I need to have people, I need to be doing this thing because I learned it, I saw it as a kid growing up, so this is how you do it, or I need to praise a man, or if I don't keep doing this, I'm going to get yelled at or I'll have problems, so we work, 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 work. And he says, no, 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 no. He said, I want you to slow down. I want you to quiet your life down. Remove some of the unnecessary distractions. And you've heard me say this. You need to take the good things out of your life. So you have time to enjoy the great things that God wants to bring into your life. 
And so there is that quietness there. But that quietness, although it's in the context here, and I'm broadening it by your world of work, I don't want to go too far because it also talks about a quiet life at home. Is there a lot of agitation on, at home? Are you involved in so many activities that you are so stressed that your kids don't see that quiet life that you have? You're running from one soccer game to one ballet practice to one paddling thing. And you adults, you do this because you love your kids and yet when the kids are in the van, you're so stressed out that they really don't see the joy and the stability and the peace of God. I'm not saying don't do these things, not at all. God isn't either. What he is saying is between you and the Lord, he said, be ambitious about quieting your life down, silently your life. I'm often asked, uh, do we have too many activities around the church? Now I'm going to give it to you in balance. I think this church should be doing more. I think we should be having more activities, more events. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.